Hello, everyone, and welcome to our International Women's Day podcast series, Breaking New Ground. Our theme for International Women's Day this year is Break the Bias. So in this series, we're focusing on some of the many ways we're working to break the bias as a firm. My name is Emma Folds, and I'm a partner in our London finance practice. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Erin Reeves, who's going to explore with me some key ways in which we've been working together to dismantle some of the barriers that may prevent our firm and indeed other organisations from being as inclusive as we would like to be. Welcome, Erin. Thank you so much, Emma. It's wonderful to be here. When I was first invited to review our partnership selection process from a diversity and inclusion perspective, I have to admit that my heart plummeted with fear that we might be found to be doing something wrong. And interestingly, almost immediately, my thought process switched track on the basis that if we were doing something wrong, we needed to correct that as soon as we could to ensure that we were giving everyone an equal opportunity to shine, to perform at their very best. And so we embarked on a quest to find an external organisation we felt we could really learn from and work with successfully, which led us there into your consultancy Nexions. I'm pleased to say that at the other end of that journey, the outcome of the review was actually really positive, and the learnings from that journey have proved to be of much wider application and interest. We shared them with the partners shortly after the project concluded, and we've heard back from some of them what a difference quite simple tips can make. Erin, could I invite you to tell me more about yourself and your consultancy actions? Of course. Thank you again for inviting me to be a part of the conversation today. Nexions is a firm that really focuses on the neurobehavior um, and the psychology of why we do what we do. I was a practicing lawyer for many years and did doctoral work specifically in the neurobehavior of sociology after I finished practicing law. And the focus of our firm over the last 20 years has been to really study human behavior and to better understand how human beings, all of us, can understand our behavior and align our behavior more in line with what we want it to be, what we commit ourselves to do. So that's what we've been doing for about the last 20 years or so. We work a lot with law firms um, across the world, as well as large organizations um, of, of all different types, including educational institutions and corporations. Erin, um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, the project that we did together and, and the outcome of that? Absolutely. And Emma, I just, you know, um, when you said that your, um, your heart plummeted when you first learned that, uh, you, you know, the people were inviting you to do this work, Honestly, that's exactly how we want leaders to respond. Um, when a problem is pointed out or the potential for a problem is pointed out, we want leaders to say, oh no, um, have I been doing it wrong? Is it okay how I've been doing it? And then immediately switch as you did to, okay, let's figure out what it is and let's actually get the data to answer the question and go from there. And so. Um, when we were invited into the process, the, the first part of it, as you already described, was really to say, what is going on here? Um, let's actually look at the data and then go from there. So 
what we discovered was that you had a really good process. But as human beings, you know, within the process, there were things that people could be doing better. And we wanted, um, we approached these problems from the perspective of human beings oftentimes start with really good intentions. So we want to focus on what can we do within the system to fix the system so that it can really show up better for the people within the system to do what it is that they want to do, to be, you know, um, to show up that the way that they want to show up. So that's exactly what we found um, within your processes as well, that there a lot of things were working. The processes were great, but within the processes, there were areas where human subjectivity um, could be tweaked a little bit, where the process could be shifted to allow people to be more objective and be less subjective. So this really was less about fixing people and more about fixing the system. And I think we were able to find a lot of different ways to do that uh, within your processes. In our work together, in our quest to ensure that our processes are fair, objective and inclusive, we've been considering neurobehavioral ways to achieve that, ways in which to interrupt bias and be the person you want to be. The first area I find fascinating is the importance of evaluating the past rather than focusing on the present as the present gives room for bias. Could you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. The past is a place where we can actually do evaluation or assessment. If you think about the past as, um, you know, as having a particular context, right? The past day, past week, past month, et cetera. When you ask people about the present, um, is Aaron intelligent? Is Aaron confident? Um, does Aaron have poise? Whenever you ask about the present, you are asking the brain for an opinion of the person's character. When you ask about the past, you are switching the brain to think about particular incidents. So did Aaron demonstrate intelligence in the way that she drafted the memo? Did Aaron um, demonstrate confidence in that call? When we talk about the past in that way, we're asking the brain to go to a specific, specific point in time and say, what happened? So the past really triggers our brain to remember behaviors and assess the behaviors. The present triggers our brain to think of opinion and of character. And anytime we're assessing people, we really want to sort of shift away from assessing someone's character into assessing their behavior and what actually happened in the past. On the theme of past and present, that's also highly relevant to gender bias. Absolutely. Um, you know, we have a lot of history of gender bias in pretty much every society um, in the world. And this idea of, you know, gender bias really brings um, all of our historical and sociological understandings of what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? What is expected of women? What is expected of men? Um, what has been historically expected, et cetera. And we are right now in a period of time where we're breaking ground for what is expected of women, right? We're in a process of changing what is expected of women. So when we talk about, um, you know, assessing women's 
capabilities, assessing women's capacities, um, or even assessing women's potential, the research is finding that when we assess women, we assess them a little bit more from a perspective of risk aversion. So we want to know exactly what the women have done. We want to know, um, you know, exactly what they have already demonstrated before we decide what their potential is. For men, we are more likely to, to give them the benefit of the doubt for potential. Why? Because our examples of success have a lot more men in it than women. So we are more likely to have the slightly more discerning eye when it comes to, you know, can someone be successful? Is someone successful when that someone is a woman? We are more likely to um, have, you know, a less risk of our stance when we're looking at whether a man has been successful, whether he can be successful in the future. We talked about a fascinating study done in relation to a maths test that was based on gender, but illustrates really well, I think, how stereotype bias can affect an outcome. Could you tell us more about that study and what we can take away from it? Sure. You know, stereotypes are interesting because we talk a lot about having stereotypes about other people. So gender bias, for example, we talk about the stereotypes that we all, men and women, have of women, of what women are capable of, uh, what women do well, what women don't do well, etc. But the other side of stereotype is called stereotype threat. And stereotype threat is the aspect of the stereotype that we've internalized about ourselves. So for example, women have internalized um, negative gender biases about women. So one of the studies done, and there's been multiple studies done on this front. One of the studies done, what they did was they asked, you know, men and women um, to come in and do um, a math exam. And they were told that this is a very complex math exam. And we're just basically looking to see how well you do on the exam. And when they had them, they had them do the math test twice, um, twice in two days. So on the first day, when the men and women took it, uh, the women actually did very comparable to the men. They were kind of located, they were distributed um, in terms of performance, you know, equally to the men. Then the next day, they had them come back in um, and take a very similar test. But this time, they had everybody read um, um, an article on how women were not as good at, you know, at math as men. Um, and so this article took maybe about 10 minutes to read. So they read the article, waited about five minutes, and then took the test. And a time after time when they did the study, the women in the, on that second day not only underperformed the men, but they underperformed themselves from the previous day. Right. So when you think about this idea of stereotype bias, what it does to our brain is when we're reminded that there is a stereotype, a negative stereotype of our group out there, we suddenly start second guessing ourselves. We second guess our instincts. We second guess our initial um, answer to something. And so the, the consequence of stereotype bias is that we end up underperforming our potential. There is, you know, um, sort of a, a mirror to stereotype bias, and it's called, I mean, stereotype threat, it's called stereotype lift. And that is when the men read the study that said women are worse than men, 
they actually overperformed themselves from the previous day, right? So when there are negative stereotypes about a group, the group that doesn't have the negative stereotype gets a little lift from that um, as well. So studies like this help us understand all this communication about diversity, about inclusion, about bias, how we're all processing it and how it transfers into um, what we end up doing and consequences of our behavior, whether or not we recognize it. The way that different genders phrase their responses can make a big difference to perception as well. Absolutely. Um, one of the, um, you know, one of the things that, as I mentioned before, we are all products of our socialization, of our historical socialization. We are, we, you know, we grow up in homes where people tell us girls do something, boys do something. And even if we grow up in extremely egalitarian homes, we absorb messages from society, we absorb messages from media, et cetera. And so what happens when, we, um, uh, when we're asked to evaluate ourselves is we evaluate ourselves from the perspective of what is socially okay for us to do or what is socially not okay for us to do. So, you know, when women are asked to talk about their success, um, they actually are quite risk averse, just as people generally are in assessing women. Women are also very risk averse in assessing themselves. So one thing that they are, you know, if, if a woman and a man do the exact same thing, a woman is more likely to describe what she did in um, more self-deprecatory means, right? So to say, well, I don't know, I think I did okay. Um, and the man is more likely to say, I did great or describe um, his actions from the perspective of being quite clear and direct. And women are um, add more risk averse language into how they, um, you know, how they're describing and defining their own successes. So what ends up happening is if you, if you hear a woman for 10 minutes describe something she did last year, and you hear a man for 10 minutes describe something he did last year, we do have the vulnerability to walk away from both of those thinking, wow, she's not as confident. She's not as sure of herself. Um, she's not as strong, doesn't have as much leadership capability. These are just the different sort of biases that have been proven when we listen to women. And we walk away from, um, the from listening to the man with very different perspectives. Now, they both may have done the exact same thing, but their descriptions of themselves doing it can, can vary quite a bit. I agree. And you've also highlighted to me that actually women often say we when they mean I, and men often say I when they mean we. So the women are creating a perception that they're a contributor rather than a leader and the men are creating a perception that they're a leader. Absolutely, and it is, um, women are taught from a very young age, and this is, you know, it's one of the few biases that is pretty consistent across the globe. So whether you are in, you know, parts of Western Europe, whether you are in Asia, whether you are in um, America, whether you're in Australia, um, the idea that women are not allowed to brag we're not allowed to say, I did this. We're not allowed to say, um, you know, uh, I took charge, et cetera. In addition to that, women tend to be more conscious of 
who all contributed, um, especially if there's other women on the team, et cetera. So when women self-assess, they talk about their successes in terms of we, even if they know that they were the primary person and men are more um, socialized from a very young age to say I, even when they mean we. Um, and one of the places that the study's been done recently, which is really interesting, is in the United States, the uh, Women's National Basketball Association and the Men's National Basketball Association, when you hear um, interviews with the athletes right after the game, you, you hear it very sharply. The, the female basketball players say, we did this, we did this, we were able to pass the ball, we were able to shoot, we were able to score. Um, and the men that were interviewed will say we in reference to the team, but they'll very quickly shift to I and say, I was able to show up. I was able to do what I came here to do. Um, I was able to step up for my team, et cetera. And so it shows up in law and it shows up in basketball as well. And I think that really specific questions about an individual's role help to help to dispel some of those impressions. There's also a gender element to how strongly people sell their success. Um, women, as we've said, might have a tendency to undersell themselves. And in that context, we've been making good use of the power of two, which I hadn't come across uh, before we started working together. Could you explain that concept to us? Sure. It's, you know, um, any time that you um, ask people to say, tell me something about what you did last month that was successful, right? When you ask about something very general, um, we tend to take a huge sort of moment in history and just say, can you generally talk about it? Well, women... In, in that sense, you know, in that setting are more likely to go into that risk averse mode. But the more specific you are, if you say, tell me two things that you did last week that were successful, or tell me five things in the last year that demonstrated your potential or demonstrated your capability to do X or Y. When you give people a number, it removes that risk aversion of saying, am I talking too much about myself? Am I giving you too much? Um, so risk aversion is more triggered by that general response. But when you are very specific, and I say at least start with two, right? if you ask about um, two things that someone did as opposed to something that you did, uh, you are more likely to, to sort of, you know, help uh, the neurobehavioral processes shift from the unconscious to the conscious. Something is very unconscious. What is something that you did? What is something that you liked? What are two things that you liked? What are five things that you did are very much more conscious. Um, this also reduces something called recency bias, which is we tend to remember the thing that happened, you know, most recently. The more we ask specific questions and contextualize it, tell me two things over the last month, your brain is more likely to remember the whole period in question, as opposed to just focusing on what it remembers that it did most recently. So we could be asking all the right questions in the right way, but in parallel be distracted by something peripheral to the conversation. How do you interrupt that bias? I don't know, maybe about somebody's virtual background or the way in which they're presenting. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we're human beings, right? And we're human beings that are being asked to assess other human beings, um, whether it is in the form of an interview, whether it is in the form of an appraisal, whether it's in the form of just meeting someone and saying, you know, do I trust them? Do I want to be their friend? Do I want to network with them, et cetera? And we have internal chatter all the time. So let's say that you are in an interview and you're looking at someone and, you know, something visual, there could be something um, that they're doing, maybe that they're nervous and maybe they're twirling their you know pencil in their hand, or um, maybe, you know, there's some weird painting in the background that just looks that, that you can't sort of um, get out of your mind, or you may not like their voice. Um, we know that sometimes we hear people's voices and we react very negatively to them. Well, one way that we can make sure that our assessment of somebody is conscious is just, you know, as you're taking notes on a piece of paper, write down those distractions. As soon as you notice something, you go, wow, I don't like that painting behind them. Write it down. Um, I like to ask people to draw, you know, a line on the piece of paper and write down all of these kinds of observations um, on the right-hand side. And I don't like them twirling their, you know, pen in their hand, or yeah, I don't like the color of their shirt. I don't like their voice, whatever it is that you can even write down positive things. I love the decor in their home, whatever it is that has nothing to do with what you're assessing, write it down in the right-hand column. Um, what your brain does once you write it down is it stops focusing on it because it recognizes that you've acknowledged the thought, right? Uh, it's kind of like when we say, don't think of a pink elephant. Of course, what is the first thing we think of as a pink elephant? So it's this is a way of saying thought acknowledged over here. Afterwards, when you go to assess, what you can do is you can actually fold the piece of paper um, so that you don't see those comments that you've written. Um, and you only assess what you wrote on the left-hand side, which is um, all of the actual um, um, assessment kind of components. So by you know, writing it on one side and writing, you know, your assessment on the other side, you can literally put it away from view by folding it. Um, and it's something that um, we've experimented on quite a bit and found very successful with people. Uh, because when we get that chatter out of our heads, we can actually focus. Uh, you can do this with lots of other things as well. If you are in the middle of an interview and you're just, you have a thought of, oh my goodness, I forgot to do that. I need to do that later write that down as well. So it doesn't have to be limited to just what you're thinking about that person. It can be anything that is going through your brain that um, is not related to, you know, what you're assessing in that moment. It's such a simple tip and it, it makes a huge difference. I can vouch for that. It seems clear from everything we've said that how you act as an interviewer, an appraiser, just in everyday conversation changes what you learn about people. And one of the images you gave us, which I love, is that bias is like a filter in front of a lens. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, bias is not some corrupt part of your brain that is bad. Um, we have biases about everything that we see. It's actually a neurological instinct 
to have filters that allow our brains to know what to take in, what to leave out, what to see as important, what to deem as not important. So if you think of fil- um, if you think of biases, almost like you know a pair of glasses that you put on a filter through which your eyes see the world. So because you're seeing it through, say, this red filter, the world looks a little red. If you change the filter to blue, the world looks a little blue. You can't necessarily do anything about the filter kind of clicking into place because that is just how our brains work. But by recognizing that you do have filters that are clicking into place, some of these techniques we talked about today um, allow you to see what's on the other side of the filter without necessarily the impact of the filter, right? You're giving your brain a chance to understand the filter uh, by neutralizing it. So you don't have to know what the filter is. You don't have to overthink it or overassess it. But when you use some of these techniques to um, not focus on the subjective and really kind of take your brain to the objective conscious part of the brain, uh, then it matters less and less what filters may have been there in terms of what you're seeing. So if I think of the applications of what you've told us, these tips could be relevant perhaps to associates and partners who are interviewing for vacation schemes and training contracts. Um, They could be relevant to any members of our team who are meeting prospective lateral hires as the world opens up again and more talented lawyers and business services professionals come and join us. They could be relevant as we go into appraisal season, both as appraiser and as appraisee. Are there any broader applications, do you think? I think that um, we are all tired. We've all been through a lot over the last two years um, across the globe. And anytime we're tired, anytime there is disruption in our environment, anytime there is chaos, um, which there has been pretty nonstop for the last two years, our brains are more likely to rely on the unconscious. So the broader application is, you know, all these types of tips help when you are meeting people maybe for the first time, even though you may have been seeing them on video for two years, you're meeting them for the first time, or you're coming back into the office, you're going back into public transportation, you are, you know, gathering together again in um, in larger public settings. Uh, these are all places where your unconscious is going to want to kick in and anything you can do to remind yourself um, that you have a choice to switch to that more conscious part of the brain through small techniques like this, it will be really useful. So I think it has a much broader application, especially as we're all coming back into workplaces. Erin, thank you so much. It is fantastic to be able to explore these important themes with you. I have personally taken away a huge amount from our work together, and I know that others have too. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Emma. If you would like to discover more ways we're working to break the bias, take a look at some of the other episodes in this Breaking New Ground series on our Clifford Chance podcast channel, which you can find on cliffordchance.com. And thank you all for listening.